0: Hello there, it's Peter White here from Rethink Energy. I've got with me our two energy analysts, Harry Morgan and Dries Wantonar. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello. We've just put our issue out. We're just going to chat amongst ourselves about a couple of the things that emerged in that issue. I've got a particular bee in my bonnet, so I'm going to go first. The UK, which is meant to be um, uh, rushing towards zero emissions with a government that doesn't seem to understand what that means has just allowed its UK export finance company, that's the government-sponsored organisation, has about eight billion pounds a year to uh, help export British um, industry. Has just put about a quarter of its budget into building an LNG um, terminal in Mozambique, and. That's just completely against everything they've written. You know, I've called for the CEO, Lewis Taylor, to be fired. I've called for the uh, government minister in charge of it to to be off the uh, cabinet. But it's not just the UK. It's the French. It's, it's pushed by Total. It's the French export finance. It's the German export finance. It's virtually every country in Europe that has said, we don't like fossil fuels. Putting 20 billion dollars to help the americans export gas around the world and they want to be praised for it so i I came out with an editorial that was a little aggressive saying fire everybody you know that's perhaps not our mission um to be quite so campaign oriented um and i think we'll go over to harry to get a bit more sanity back harry you
1: talked about the creation of something called ocean Winds. can you tell us about that yeah, so Ocean Winds was released this week by uh, NG and NDP, NDPR, sorry. Essentially, it's a collaboration they've had for a few months, really, in the offshore wind sector. They've worked together for ages. And they launched the company very much as a um, collaboration between the two to compete with the likes of Orsted. which seems a little bit unrealistic at this point. The pairing together only have a uh, pipeline around 3.4 gigawatts. Um, whereas Allstead's sort of pushing past 12 gigawatts has a massive share of the market. I think it's, it's around 20% of all offshore wind installations outside of China. Um, and it's even behind, well, Ocean Wind will even be behind Vattenfall, RWE, Equinor, Iberdrola, several of the uh, Chinese developers uh, in terms of its pipeline capacity.
0: So, so and, uh, let me just get capacity. this right. This is EDPR, Energy of Portugal Renewables partnering with French firm Engie. So it's this like Southern Europe team versus Northern Europe team, trying to, trying to edge in on Austed's territory.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, they're based in Spain. So what we can really see from where these people are based, and especially through their pipeline as well, is that they're going to have a really large focus on floating as part of their early business. I mean, I'm just looking at their their pipeline list here and I'll rethinking an each database. And beyond 2022, half of them are floating, which is huge really considering there's only around 500 megawatts of floating that's been approved on an international scale so what i'm taking from this is that ng and edpr are going to really focus to become the orsted of floating wind rather than trying to compete with orsted on the fixed base platform
0: where does where does orsted sit on float on floating because as as i understand it you you get to things like taiwan they they were thinking about a floating platform, and then they invited Orsted to bid, and Orsted basically said, no, let's do fixed platform. Don't they prefer fixed platform?
1: Yeah, I mean, Allstead um, and Vattenfall as well, actually, they got no pipeline projects with floating platforms, um, which seems a bit peculiar, considering it's such an emerging market. I think we've got it pushing 90 gigawatts by 2040 in our, in our forecast, but there's no doubt that there's a market there, but I think Allstead and Vestfold are just happy to take the profit where it lies at the moment, and that is in fixed-based wind. Um, whereas it seems like this new collaboration um, in the Mediterranean is really going to sort of focus on on growing its market share there.
0: Yeah, but maybe, maybe you know, uh, Austin has become a bit of a shoe in They turn up late and say, you know, we're we're the experts. Give us the contract, and they they're picking up business because of their credentials. And maybe that's that's the thing. Miss this stage out, push to the next one. Get there early. I mean, uh, uh, does anyone have an edge with principal power, who seems to be the leading platform in this market?
1: Well, another another, another company that could be big in this market is Equinor. I think where it will be really interesting to sort of monitor over the next few months is places like California, places like Taiwan, uh, places like South Korea, where these floating markets will definitely be sort of outweighing the fixed-base market sort of beyond 2030. So it is really sort of dependent on how much activity we see. I'd imagine Allstead will jump into the market at some point, and they will jump in hard, but it's it's really hard to say at this point.
0: Okay. All right. Well, that's that's good. We see someone coming into the market that's fresh there. we um, We won't see anything let up on floating wind. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, Andres. You you tell me about something about wafer size. We're talking about um, wafers for uh, silicon PV modules uh, coming out of China. A bit of an argument going on there.
2: Uh, Yes. So, so for about seven or eight years, wafer sizes were fairly static. They were in this 156 millimeter, and they were growing very gradually from the M zero category up to M four, which is only 161.7 millimeters, and then last year. And this year, it's still a new thing. You have M6, which is 166 millimeters, which is a bit bigger, a bit more powerful. Uh, But now there's a much bigger expansion in size. And that's starting to see much more significant problems for compatibility in the manufacturing processes, the supply lines, all of that. And these are the sizes that you need for the 500 watt solar panels that are much more powerful that you're starting to see and so there's these two big new sizes. There's you've got the 182 millimeter, the 210 millimeter, and there's a choice um, in front of a lot of these companies and the, throughout the supply line of which one do they retool for, which one do they choose? And last week you had 39 companies form the photovoltaic open innovation ecological alliance in China, headed by Trina Solar. That's the M12 category, the, the bigger one for 210. And then that was a that was a month after. The smaller one, 182mm, had its group of seven companies headed by Longi uh, and with the M10 wafer size.
0: Well, what what do we think, you know, who, who are the, the gorillas here? I mean, if, isn't Longi one of the largest? Has it got bigger partners? I mean, if you look at the total output of those seven companies against that 39 others, you know, which has got more market share between them?
2: I think it's actually the seven group, which is more established or, well, they got their group together a month earlier and they're with the smaller size, which is um, less of a nuisance really to retool for. It's, it's more convenient. It's got an advantage in the shipping container size. If you look at how 182 millimeter and 210 millimeter stack up in the shipping containers, the 182 millimeter is more convenient. The, the larger size 210 is, coming online maybe in the fourth quarter of this year uh, into mash production for the first time whereas the smaller size is actually this quarter quarter three but but in the longer term because we're seeing this consistent trend towards larger module sizes you might say that the 210 millimeter one will win out eventually but maybe for now it's the 182 millimeter which is the more established
0: so what we don't really have is a feel for yields. I mean, the thing about anything where you're cutting the silicon is, you know, if if you get one wrong, you know, and it doesn't work, what percentage of your work have you wasted? And yields are, are, in the chip industry are absolutely vital for picking your next size. Um, I guess that you know, if there was yield information available, um, the two hundred and ten would be substantially behind. Uh, the smaller form factor. And uh, I, I guess those. Um, as that, this is a bit of a flyer from, from a group of companies who are essentially in the minority of market share. Harry, do you, do you go along with that?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as you know, I'm not, I'm not too focused on the solar sector these days, but I think the really interesting thing we've seen this week is just how much production is coming out of China in terms of solar. And I think that's something that I'm, I'm really interested in to see um, because obviously you've got people like Jinko, Trina, all just ramping up production, basically on the orders of the Chinese government. So it'll be interesting to see how they now price their solar panels in a market where they're going to have to dump them at some point.
0: But, but you know, they're still picking up several percentage points a year in um, in, in, in able to cut their prices, um, potentially 8 or 9% per annum. I mean, it's still reducing.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think but what will be really interesting to see is how they, how they price them when they've got this big abundance of, of products that they've got lying in their warehouses but don't have the demand that we've seen sort of through COVID. So there will, there will be a, a large sort of all the products uh, of products to get rid of.
0: Yeah. Okay, and we're going to go on to hydrogen now because you wrote a piece about, um, was it in Portugal that they're, they're punching way above their weight in the hydrogen market?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting argument, actually, thinking um, now we've obviously got this EU hydrogen strategy, but who's going to lead the field? I mean, you've got countries like the UK, who obviously will, will put a bid in, because you even have offshore wind that we've got in development. Um, you've got the Netherlands, you've got Germany. But Portugal's this sort of understated player, really, and they've sort of been getting on with it um, for the past few months, really without sort of making too much noise. Um, the news this week was that the government of command said that they've had €16 billion euros worth of investment proposal for hydrogen in the Portuguese industry, um, which is already double that, that they've expected by twenty thirty. So
0: Wow. And and that that's coming purely from industry. That's not, not government subsidized, that's not uh, with any sweetener in there?
1: No, this is the large bulk of this is private investment and it's the mobility sector and sort of gas grid injection. I mean that's where Portugal have really placed its focus on its early hydrogen economy is rolling out um, hydrogen into the existing natural gas grid. And, and it's all about price because the gas grid injection
0: uh, some people are writing off as, as way beyond the, the kind of hydrogen will be used for transport only uh, at first and slowly the numbers will ramp and then as the price comes dramatically down we can go uh, into into injecting it into the natural gas stream but you're, you're saying they're going to go straight for that day one.
1: Yeah well the, the interesting thing is that in the Portuguese gas grid, you can inject up to around 5% of green hydrogen. And when you're doing about... It's not a lot. Skin, it's not, not a lot. You can do 20% in some other sky. Yeah, it's not a lot. But when you're only injecting 5% of green hydrogen, even if it is expensive, sort of up towards 3 to €6 Euros per kilogram, the cost of that then puts onto the customer, you don't really notice the difference. So it is quite easy to sort of sneak up uh, in terms of the amount of green hydrogen in the energy mix before it becomes cost competitive in sort of the late 2020s. And then once you've reached that point, then you can start rolling out areas of 100% green hydrogen one at a time.
0: But at this rate, it won't be the twenty late 2020s when it comes to cost competitive. You put $16 billion behind it in one country, in Europe, and other countries try and catch up, it will be 2025 and it will start to be cost competitive.
1: Uh, it will be 2025. I absolutely know that. It's a, it's a classic case of the industry being underestimated. I mean, we've seen it in solar, we've seen it in batteries. Uh, green hydrogen will be the next thing that is cost competitive well ahead of its time uh, uh, and 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 it may all be happening in portugal and that
0: it needs one sorry sorry to to do the hindenburg uh, joke but it just needs one spark and this market will set alight
1: yeah definitely and um, portugal's got really low cost uh, solar power it's got really good access to to africa if that's where we end up getting most of Europe's green hydrogen from so it is a going to be one of these markets where we do see low-cost hydrogen first and we'll see this point of parity reached really early
0: so all the all the way around to that mozambique story they shouldn't have put the an lng terminal in mozambique they should have put a hydrogen terminal in portugal yeah absolutely that's my that's my thinking anyway all right thanks very much okay that's all we have time for today on the rethink energy podcast the issue itself is a 30-page document um, well worth the read, well worth asking Simon Thompson here for uh, a trial. Um, go to the website, just click up for a trial. And remember, almost every month we've got a new one or two reports uh, that are forecast. And um, the next report going to look at hydrogen. We've done a quarterly tracking services for wind and solar in the last few weeks. Thank you very much.